Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into our Thanksgiving edition of the Legal Face Off podcast here on WGN Radio. As always, we're very, very thankful for all our listeners and viewers. And as we start today's show, let's bring in Rich Lenkov of Bryce Downey and Lenkov. Rich, how's it going? Good, Joe. How are you? Doing well, doing well. And our other co-host, Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Tina, how are you doing today? Great. How are you, Joe? Doing well, doing well. So let's start off with Daryl Brooks, the man who drove his car through a Wisconsin parade. He was issued a $1,000 cash bail. We have with us of the Booker Law Group in Wisconsin, Paul Booker. He's worked on the legal counsel of Wisconsin State Senate and has been named one of the top lawyers in Wisconsin as well. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Paul, you were uh, actually Waukesha County DA for over 25 years. We should know that's the longest service record of any DA in that position. So obviously you're close to the story. For your listeners, the latest as to what's going on in Waukesha today. Well, today he will be, uh, again, Mr. Brooks is presumed innocent. Uh, even though everybody says he drove through it, and I understand that sentiment with the videotape, but he is presumed innocent. He'll be appearing today in front of uh, uh, court commissioners. Some refer to him as a magistrate, or her could be. And I don't know if the DA, um, who actually I hired and trained, will have the charges ready by 3 o'clock. It could be. Otherwise, this will simply be a bail hearing because individuals are entitled to a bail hearing within 72 hours in Wisconsin once you are detained. So I don't know, and I've not seen any criminal complaints. I do know that the police chief indicated what he's referring. But as you know, what the police refer isn't necessarily what the DA charges. So we'll yeah, Paul, that's a really good point I want to pick up on. You, you took note, of course, as a veteran prosecutor to call him a suspect, and this is an alleged you know, crime. Very important for our listeners to remember that, of course, we all saw the video. It's a pretty notorious case so far, but this is an allegation. But talk to us about how, as a prosecutor, it takes time to develop enough facts to charge them with a crime, even after the police make an arrest. Again, we all, as a general public, look at these videos and wonder why someone isn't charged right away. But could you lead us through a little bit as to what goes on behind the doors in a prosecutor's office to make sure that you can get a case together not just to charge someone, but to convict someone and how difficult that is in a high profile case with national media involved. Well, you bring up a good point um, because charging somebody is easy. Um, I mean, if you go by the legal standard, probable cause, but I would never charge on probable cause because what good is that if you can't convict beyond a reasonable doubt? So I always would make sure that I could prove whatever I charge beyond a reasonable doubt. I don't know if District Attorney Opper has all the reports she needs. Um, I would doubt it at this point. I don't know if the medical examiner has finished the autopsy and done the med uh, done the protocols. I I mean, we can take an oral report, certainly from the medical examiner, but I know her and I know she's not comfortable with that. So I'm going to guess, just based on the review of the videotape, there are 50, maybe 40 different police agencies out there. And maybe they did nothing, maybe they did something, but they all have to file what we call matter ofs reports. 
and district attorney opera has to review those. That's a lot of reports to review, but it doesn't necessarily mean she has to fight or uh, file everything that she thinks she can prove today. Uh, she doesn't even have to file anything today. She can just do a bail hearing and indicate that the file of what we call a probable cause statement. So I'm not sure what the DA will do, but uh, it does take a long time. I'm sure there's going to be thousands of pages of, of police reports to review. And the prosecutor uh, charges off paper. And I'd always tell police when I would do in-service for police officers that the most powerful tool in the criminal justice system is actually a dictaphone, not a, not a firearm. And that district attorney makes a decision between a felony or a misdemeanor. Or it's really significant. And I, would, I took that to heart. So I, I, uh, I'm not sure what she'll be able to do or how many prosecutors she'll assign this case to. We have at least 40 injured people. I represent one of them. The mother called me last night, not civilly, just to try to run interference. Um, so we'll see. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I We kind of chatted informally. So I think she's under enormous pressure to file something today. And uh, so I don't know if it'll be intentional homicide or reckless homicide. I'm not sure this is an intentional homicide case. I know everybody believes that. I get that. A lot of public pressure out there based on that video. How in God's name could you not file an intentional homicide? Well, you don't want to overcharge. And I know we're going to talk on that later, but uh, you, you charge what you can prove. And this may be a combination of both. I'm not sure. But it takes an enormous amount of time to review those reports and come out with something. So we'll have to wait and see. So, Paul, um, what makes this case so charged is the fact that Brooks has a long criminal history and actually was last released on November 11th after a November 5th domestic violence charge. He posted a $1,000 bond, as Joe mentioned in the introduction. Do you think that this tragedy could have been prevented with a more aggressive bond? Oh, for sure. Um, but you're focusing just on one case. Uh, I've got the case numbers here, which I'm sure are really not necessary. But he was charged with resisting felony bail jumping, uh, second degree reckless endangerment for running over his girlfriend with a domestic violence enhancer, disorderly conduct and battery. And that was his 12th entry that I saw for cases. Uh, he probably has about 30, 30 counts total in his past. And bail was set, um, as you indicated, on November 11th at $1,000, which is uh, unbelievably low for that type of, just for those charges, even without a criminal history, you would never get $1,000 bail in this county, I can tell you that. Uh, but this is Milwaukee County and John Chisholm, who I know personally, uh, is a nice guy. He wasn't in the courtroom, but he has policies and procedures just like I did when I was DA. And I'm sure that there's going to be some some hell to pay here. But more importantly is there's a case uh, that precedes that, uh, 2020 CF 2550, where he was charged with second-degree reckless endangerment again, this time two counts, with use of a firearm. And this is dealing with him shooting at his brother-in-law, I believe, and possession of a firearm by a felon. The bail on that case was initially set at $10,000. So as you can imagine, he did not have the wherewithal to post that bail. Eventually, it was reduced to $7,500, but he didn't have the ability to even post that. He did request a speedy trial, which in Wisconsin indicates that you have to go to trial within a certain amount of days. 
And because of court congestion, the court was not able to accommodate his trial. And so if bail is set over $500 and you don't have your trial within that period of time, you're released. So the court then reduced the bail on that case to $500. So he actually was out on two felon, two serious felony cases on $1,500, $1,000 on the latter, and $500 that was reduced from $10,000, which I just find to be astounding that that was reduced from $10,000 to $500. And I know the court probably did that to avoid having him released, but he was released anyways. He posted it. So that accomplished absolutely nothing. And those cases are still pending. One is set for uh, December 20th, and one is set for December 3rd for a plea and sentencing. Well, obviously, that's not going to occur. So, and he's got a history going back to 1990, which I won't bore you with, but it's all almost exclusively, um, there are some drug cases in there, but it's, it's violence, battery, substantial battery, et cetera. There were also quite a few charges that were submitted to the DA, but not prosecuted. But he's a bad dude. Very hard, Paul, to uh, accept, and especially for the victims, of course, of this deadly rampage to accept that someone with this history was back on the streets so soon after another similar incident. Let's turn your attention, though, to another high profile case coming out of your state, Wisconsin, of course. Uh, the Rittenhouse verdict uh, is now behind us uh, as a veteran prosecutor in Wisconsin. Maybe you can let us. Give us some insight into the uniqueness of maybe a Wisconsin jury when it comes to cases like this. Obviously, you know, I think the prosecutors underestimated the strength of the self-defense uh, theory in that uh, in that jurisdiction. What do our listeners and viewers need to know that's maybe a little bit unique to jurors in your part of the world when it comes to the right of self-defense and also Second Amendment. Well, this really was not a Second Amendment case, in my opinion. Um, I mean, a backdoor Second Amendment because self-defense, uh, while it's not mentioned in the Second Amendment, a lot of people think it is. It's not. Self-defense is statutory only. And if Wisconsin wanted to take a whiteout and take the self-defense privilege out of the statute, they could do that. So it's purely statutory. And most states, I, I think all states, have some form of self-defense. It varies from state to state, but it's pretty similar based upon Supreme Court rulings that in order to for the defense to claim self-defense. And once they claim that, the burden doesn't shift to the defense. I've heard on other networks that uh, the defense proved their case. That's wrong. The defense never has to prove anything. As you know, the burden never shifts to the defense. It's always on the government. So when you claim self-defense and there's a basis to claim it, the government has to prove not only the elements of the substantive offense, but also that there was no self-defense, um, um, elements of the substantive offenses and that there was no self-defense. In this case, I've said from the very beginning, as a prosecutor of 30 years and been doing this 42 years, this case was massively overcharged. And, and I'm not sure why, but to give you an example, they charged a curfew violation. I mean, seriously, uh, why would you charge a curfew violation in a homicide case? Uh, and a firearm violation that everybody makes a big deal out of. Uh, that, that's nothing. This was a straight-up homicide case. Uh, I would have charged one, two counts of first-degree intentional homicide and one count of attempted intentional homicide, and that's it. 
I would not have charged all the other nonsense they charged. For instance, they charged reckless endangering safety, which is engaging in conduct that endangers somebody, of an individual they didn't even know. We call him the jumper. It was the individual that jumped over Mr. Rittenhouse. And they say he's an unknown male. I call that the new, the new, first name unknown, last name unknown. And they charged that. So that just tells me that the government looked at this case and they threw everything they could against the kitchen wall and, and, and to see what stuck. I agree that they vastly underestimated the self-defense. Mr. Rittenhouse testified very well. And even the government's witnesses sunk their ship, in my opinion. So I don't think there's anything unique about the Wisconsin jury. I can't tell you what a Cook County jury would decide because just of the differences, you know, that occur in Cook County versus Waukesha County in terms of violent crimes. But self-defense is self-defense. And I, I believe it still would occur in uh, Chicago or Cook County. But the, this case can, can't be replicated uh, factually because it's very unique. So the jury, I give them credit uh, for standing their ground because this was a politically charged case. And for whatever reason, it just got out of control. It just got into a political spin that I've never quite seen before. And uh, the jurors, I'm, I'm not stupid. I, I'm sure they knew that. And they could hear the protesters outside. But they stood their ground and they looked at this case very carefully. So uh, was I surprised? Yes. I predicted one count of reckless homicide. I predicted that he would be convicted of one count of reckless homicide only because we have two dead people. And I didn't think the jury would say, we're just going to let you walk away from that. But predicting juries is a difficult science, uh, one I usually don't engage in. It's a lot of insight from Paul Booker. Feel free to check out his website, bookerlawgroup.com. That's B-U-C-H-E-R lawgroup.com. Paul, thank you so much for the time. Thank you very much and pleasure joining y'all. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com.
Continuing on with the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict and Ahmad Arbery murder here on the Legal Faceoff podcast, we have Professor Kimberly Ferzan of the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School, where she's also the co-editor-in-chief of Law and Philosophy. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So in both cases, Rittenhouse and Arbery, which is now uh, the jury is now deliberating uh, that case, we've got similar stories, right? We've got men who took up guns in the name of protecting the public and wound up killing unarmed people claiming self-defense. In both cases, the defendants claimed that they were justified in the killing because the victims were trying to take their guns. Is it increasingly difficult in our country to balance the right to self-defense and uh, the right under the Second Amendment that seems to be expanding somewhat to uh, keep and bear arms? So... I'm not sure that it's actually difficult to balance those two rights. I think that the problem is that we're seeing an extension uh, from what was originally self-defense only when I'm seeing an imminent attack against me to self-defense where I get to stand my ground to what you see in uh, Rittenhouse, which is I am going to go bring a weapon to defend if necessary, right? So there's no attack at the time that Kyle Rittenhouse decides to show up to what we're seeing in Arbery, which is citizen's arrest, right? I'm going to go completely on the offensive. So we can absolutely have our traditional self-defense and have a Second Amendment. But as we keep extending uh, when it is permissible for citizens to use force, we're going to run into problems with the number of citizens who have guns. So, Professor, your Texas Law Review article, Taking Aim at Pointing Guns, analyzes the intersection of these. And you analyze how stand your ground and citizens' arrest laws have now given citizens the license not just to defend themselves, but to go after others. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? So citizens arrest laws, which exist throughout the United States, and I don't think that we've paid enough attention to them, actually are giving individual citizens the right to say, I have now witnessed, or I believe I have witnessed a felony, misdemeanor or breach of the peace. And because of that, I as a citizen am entitled to arrest you. Right. So that is where we're seeing, I think, particularly in Arbery problems where we have to figure out it, how, exactly how extensive we want individual citizens to have the right to act as police officers. Professor, the uh, the Rittenhouse prosecution argued that Rittenhouse gave up the right to self-defense when he became uh, the you know, when he engaged in provocation. Uh, namely by crossing state lines with an assault rifle to protect an empty parking lot. The jury obviously didn't buy that. Uh, what are your thoughts on this provocation theory and also as it applies to the Arbery trial? Right. So I think that those are two, in some ways, different cases. And the biggest problem that the prosecutor had in Rittenhouse is the way that the provocation relates to the self-defense law. So under Wisconsin law, uh, to forfeit your right to self-defense by provocation, you forfeit against non-deadly force. So if I go to a bar, I call your mom a bunch of names, you go to punch me, I'm not allowed to stop you from that uh, under Wisconsin law. You only forfeit the right to use deadly force if you show up intending to basically invoke deadly force. 
So the minute that even if you think that Kyle Rittenhouse engaged in provocation, he didn't forfeit rights against deadly force in what he did. And so then the question was just straightforwardly, did he reasonably believe at that moment that he needed to use deadly force to defend himself against an imminent attack of deadly force or serious bodily injury? So the problem was that there wasn't the room in the law to make the kind of argument that the prosecutor wanted to make and many people out in society want to make, which is when you come to a fight, when you come looking for a fight and you get the fight you were looking for, you should lose rights to defensive force. Wisconsin law was not set up that way. What's going on in Arbery is a little bit different, right? Because it's a combination of citizen's arrest meets in, uh, meets initial aggressor. And the way that the judge is now instructing the jury on citizen's arrest, where it looks like the defendants are not going to be able to avail themselves of that defense, then leaves the defendants just with the question, were they in the initial aggressors? And then the facts about running after him, pointing weapons at him, all clearly fall within uh, the definition of an unlawful initial aggressor under Georgia law the minute that their behavior doesn't constitute a citizen's arrest, then it simply becomes unlawful and they will forfeit their rights. So, Professor, if you had to prognosticate, how do you think the jury's going to come out? They're out and they're deliberating as we speak. Uh, I, you know, I always worry uh, about that. I think that uh, the, so I think there are two separate things to say here. One is the way that citizen, the citizen's arrest statute has been construed by the judge, it is going to be extremely difficult for the defense. That being said, at the end of the day, self-defense has to be disproven by the state beyond a reasonable doubt. And there are reasons to think we want the state to bear the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But that does mean that you might think reasonable minds might differ on something and nevertheless the jury is going to come out with an acquittal where someone else would come out uh, with a guilty verdict. So uh, I, I never like guessing exactly what juries will do, uh, but I think that's, that is ultimately where the inquiry is gonna be. You know, Professor, as a, as a litigator myself, I am watching as much of the trial as I possibly can and find every aspect of it fascinating. You know, they just had a little while ago jury instructions in the Arbery case, which I think most people would find boring. I, I saw one analyst say, you know, that's why you never see jury instructions on law and order is because it's the most boring part of the trial. But, you know, you just explained it, I think, very articulately. But do you think it's a lot to ask for a jury of 12 lay people to understand some of the differences in the laws and the finer details of those laws, as you just explained it? Or is the jury just going to look at it and say, you know, who is right, who is be, who is being the aggressor, because these jury instructions do, and especially in the Rittenhouse case, seem to be rather confusing, even to seasoned legal experts. So, so I agree that jury instructions can be tricky. I, I think that uh, one thing that when the Rittenhouse uh, juror, jurors asked for the instructions and wanted to read them, it was because they wanted to make sure they were getting it right. They didn't want to just rely on the judge having given uh, one oral statement. They want to review them. They want to make sure that they're being careful with them. At the same time, 
we we should hope that the closing arguments from both the prosecution and the defense give the jurors some ways to sort of filter the law and apply it to the facts so that they're they're not just doing this unschooled but we're lawyers are helping them figure out how to apply those jury instructions again that's professor kimberly Furzan of the university of pennsylvania Carey law school you can find her on twitter at Kim Furzan, K-I-M-F-E-R-Z-A-N. Hope it's okay I gave that away, Professor, but thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. We all know the legal world is complex and high-pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Moving along in the Legal Faceoff podcast, we head to the deadly Houston music festival, Astroworld, which is now giving refunds to attendees. A personal injury attorney, Nima Romani, is claiming that that could be an effort to avoid lawsuits. We have joined with us Nima, the president and co-founder of West Coast Trial Lawyers, also a former federal prosecutor. Nima, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Nima, just to set context for our conversation today about Astroworld, more than 100 lawsuits have already been filed with regard to this terrible tragedy who are the defendants that you think of the universe of defendants that are potentially liable here? Who are the defendants that you think are most likely to be found liable? And what about Travis Scott himself? Yeah, you're looking at three primary defendants, maybe a fourth if you count Drake. But the three primary defendants are going to be Travis Scott himself, Live Nation, the promoter, and the venue. And there's many bases for liability against each of those three. What are your thoughts on Travis Scott's liability? I mean, what would you, if you were handling this case, if you were one of the uh, plaintiff lawyers, how would you f- fashion your complaint and what would you make, what, what, what argument would you make to a jury against Travis Scott himself? After all, he was the performer. Uh, he's not in charge of security himself per se. So what would your argument be to a jury against this very deep pocketed defendant, obviously? Sounds like uh, you're already reading those defense arguments. But Travis Scott has a history of inciting violence at his events. You know, going back to 2019, there's been previous criminal charges filed against him. And in this particular case, he started and continued performing for 40 minutes after the first reported injury. That's the strongest basis for liability against him in this particular case. So what type of criminal liability do you see potentially here? And potentially, you're going to to be looking at everything up to and including manslaughter. And really, the question is knowledge and intent. What did Scott know? What was he told? And what did he do in response? If there's witnesses that come forward and say, hey, I told Travis Scott that folks are getting injured, people are dying, and he continued performing, that's reckless, that's criminally negligent, and that's manslaughter in my book. Yeah, I think you raised really a couple of really interesting points. I mean, the fact that he wrote music about, you know, incidents like this, encouraging people to storm the stage in so many words, uh, I think will be a key piece of evidence. Of course, you know, you talk, then you got to deal with blurring the lines between artistic freedom and what you write in a song and what might be your, you know, actual directives to a 50,000 group of people. Also, but to your point, the fact that he 
has been convicted of similar offenses, pled guilty, in fact, actually, of similar offenses in the past, I think will be a key piece of evidence. Let's turn to your thoughts, as Joe mentioned in the opening, to the fact that uh, some contragoers have accepted refunds from the promoters in this case, Live Nation and um, Scoremore. You have stated that if you do accept a refund, then you may waive your ability to go after these companies civilly. Explain why that is. Well, it depends what the fine print says, and courts have generally upheld these waivers or arbitration provisions, one or the other. Usually those arbitration provisions are on the front end, the fine print when you actually buy the tickets. But on the back end, if you accept something of value and there is a waiver of those civil claims, courts all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court have and they will uphold those waivers. So make sure you read what you're signing if you're getting any money from Live Nation or the venue. All right, so let's walk through that. So if I'm a contract goer who was at Astroworld during this event and I get a refund, um, I'm supposed to know that accepting this refund for my you know, couple hundred bucks of tickets waves, by signing that, I waive my ability to go after all of the defendants for potentially millions of dollars. That doesn't seem equitable. And again, I speak as a defense lawyer who asserts that kind of defense all the time, but does it seem equitable? Does it seem reasonable for the average layperson to understand that they're giving this very lucrative write up in exchange for a couple hundred bucks worth of tickets? So I don't know what the actual document says, you know, and I'm not saying that Live Nation is going to insert that language. And any waiver has to be knowing and voluntary. But if it's in there, in that capital print, folks are accepting money and they sign it, notwithstanding any waiver, courts are going to uphold that waiver, in my opinion. All right, Nima, while we have you for the last minute, uh, we know you've been all over the media talking about a lot of other high-profile cases besides Astroworld. Of course, we've been talking for weeks, and in fact, today, about Rittenhouse and Arbery, uh, also the case uh, up in Waukesha, Wisconsin. What are your thoughts on, uh, what's your main takeaway from any of these cases? Do you think we'll see, for example, in the Arbery case, do you think we'll see a, a verdict today? Do you think they'll be out for as long as the Rittenhouse uh, jury was? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'll go through them real quickly. I mean, first, obviously, Brooks there in Wisconsin. Really sad case, just really unconscionable that someone that's a convicted sex offender um, out on bail after jumping bail um, and has been charged with trying to run over a woman and discharging a firearm is released on a $1,000 bail. That tragedy could have easily been avoided there in Wisconsin. So very sad. Rittenhouse, very tough case for the prosecution, um, both in terms of how the evidence came out and the witnesses and the law there in Wisconsin. We're talking about Wisconsin law that puts the burden on the state to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. Wisconsin also allows for imperfect self-defense. Minority rule, a lot of states don't do that. Not surprised the case ended up the way it did, but still, I think it's a case you have to prosecute as the state of Wisconsin, if you have a kid that brings an AR-15 to a protest. Arbery, fascinating. I do expect that case to go well for the state. I do expect a guilty verdict, but the most interesting part of that case is the fact that after Travis McMichael shot and killed Ahmaud Arbery, he's standing over his dead body. He utters the N-word, at least according to what Roddy Bryan told law enforcement. But the way the defendants testified, Travis took the stand, told his story, but Roddy Bryan did not. And because Bryan did not, he was not subject to cross-examination under the Confrontation Clause of the U.S. Constitution. That N-word didn't come in. So that's the most fascinating part of the case. Had that evidence come in, I would have expected a very quick guilty verdict, maybe as early as today or tomorrow. 
Again, that's former federal prosecutor Nima Romani, the president and co-founder of West Coast Trial Lawyers. Nima, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, as always. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Time to move on to the Legal Grab Bag segment of the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. Two great guests joined with us today. We'll start with Bob Coyne of WGN Radio and friend of the Legal Faceoff podcast. Great to see you today, Bob. Thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Along with Xavier Pope, host of Suit Up News, finance VP of the National Association of Black Journalists, along with being a writer at Forbes, The Athletic, and Al Jazeera Breaking News. You can follow him on Twitter at Xavier Pope. That's E-X-A-V-I-E-R, Pope, P-O-P-E, on Twitter. Xavier, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. All right, Rich. So we've got some we've talked about a lot today with Daryl Brooks Jr. and allegedly going through that Wisconsin parade with his car. Yeah, I mean, what I want to focus on today from a legal perspective is, you know, his long criminal history that we talked about with one of our guests earlier. Uh, You know, many have pointed to this case as an example of the lax uh, bond system in this country. Of course, in Chicago, we're very aware because Kim Fox, Cook County State's attorney, has relaxed a lot of these standards. So many, again, are pointed to this case as what is wrong with some of, um, you know, criminal justice reform because, as we covered earlier, this suspect, and he is a suspect only for now, had a very, very long history of uh, multiple aggravated uh, assaults, domestic battery uh, convictions, um, and as recently as November 11th was released on a $1,000 bond stemming from some charges uh, about a week before of you know some serious domestic violence and battery and some other charges. So let's get everyone's thoughts about whether, you know, this could have been prevented. Certainly our earlier guest, Mr. Buecher, who was the Waukesha County DA for 25 years, felt that that was an exceedingly lenient amount. A thousand dollars for someone with his criminal history was incredibly lenient. Perhaps Tina, this could have been prevented uh, had he not been released from jail on a thousand dollar bond. I agree, Rich. I mean, it was interesting. Some of the press out there says that you can never necessarily um, prevent something like this from happening in terms of someone getting in their car and going into a crowd like this. And we've seen, unfortunately, tragedies like this in the past. But in this particular instance, I believe that this suspect actually did try to run over his girlfriend in a car. And so 
there is a bit of a history with using his vehicle as a means to commit a crime and to hurt, if not kill people. And the fact that he had only a thousand dollars bond is remarkable given the circumstances. And apparently based on our, our interview earlier in the show, it looks like there is a history of, of crime here with this suspect where his bail has been reduced from $10,000 to lower amounts and he is a repeat offender. So I am in the camp that this could have been prevented. Xavier, on the other hand, we have uh, House Democrats yesterday, uh, most prominently Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Jamie Raskin, uh, among them who said that um, they had grave concerns that excessive bail amounts are leading to unnecessary pretrial detention and contribute to a humanitarian crisis in New York City's jail system, especially on Rikers Island. So we do have two competing interests here. What are your thoughts on it? I, I'd like to think that we live in an era where we have competing issues, but we understand nuance in how the fullness and the richness of some of these issues exist in various different communities, various different types of crimes, uh, various um, setups. I think that when it comes to this particular uh, defendant, uh, record going back uh, 20 years, uh, the crime itself of using his automobile, um, but you also have to look at the, his intent of this particular crime is lined up with so, so, some sort of reckless standard in relation to leaving a, a knife fight and that was a means of escape versus using his car to intentionally hit someone. I think that we have to look at that. Also look at him as a repeat offender and how do you address bail as it relates to, uh, to a repeat offenders and the amount of that bail versus certain cash strapped uh, versions of bail where you may be a first time offender or you may not necessarily have the, the level of bail that matches the crime. And that can vary from various jurisdictions and how the legislature of those it, those jurisdictions handle criminal defendants. Sometimes they are disproportionately African-American. And so I think that this situation presents us an opportunity to look at how do you handle repeat offenders and how do you handle bail and making sure it is, it is sufficient. But in, in different cases where you have cap strapped individuals who may lose their jobs, who may lose their livelihoods uh, and put them in a position where they're sitting and languishing in prisons as the justice system holds them hostage, you have to address excessive bail in that situation too. I think we have to look at the fullness of the issue as opposed to looking at one case with one way and how that affects others as well. Yeah, I think those are excellent points. Uh, Bob, in this particular case involving the House Democrats letter uh, with regards to Rikers Island, they are arguing that a full three quarters or more than three quarters of these 6,000 people in custody at Rikers Island have yet to be tried. Um, so again, as Xavier mentioned, there are competing interests here, and I think a balance is required. I think most people would agree, though, that uh, you know some of this reform should obviously apply to nonviolent, non-repeat offenders. In this case, with this suspect in Waukesha, neither of those qualifiers apply. This is such a complicated case with Daryl Brooks you know, obviously, the young man has uh, some serious issues going on in his life. And, and in terms of the, the bail, it, it, it would make sense. Obviously, it doesn't always make sense what we think uh, to have some sort of an elevator clause if someone has been arrested multiple times uh, to penalize them in some way to eliminate maybe 
a percentage of this kind of an instance. But as Tina referred, you can never re, re, you know, uh, stop something like this from happening when it's just uh, so out of control. Moving on to some of the other biggest court hearings going on, protests going on nationwide after the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. And just yesterday, the prosecution and defense making their closing arguments for the Ahmaud Arbery murder, Rich. Yeah, the Arbery uh, uh, jury is out. Uh, We saw some pretty compelling uh, evidence, particularly the I thought the cross-examination of the defendant who testified was particularly compelling. Um, In fact, you know, I'm actually leading a discussion for some of my attorneys uh, about cross-examination. What you can learn from the cross-examinations in both the Rittenhouse and and Arbery trials, both good and bad. But, Tina, um, I think talking about the Rittenhouse case, uh, of course, he was, you know, uh, interviewed by Tucker Carlson yesterday. I watched that. Um, A lot of folks are questioning whether there will be some civil liability going forward, whether the families will sue uh, Rittenhouse, I think that's coming on the horizon. Uh, in the Arbery verdict or Arbery trial, I think we're going to see a verdict fairly quickly, and I think it's very different. I, I do expect a uh, a guilty finding by the verdict or by the I'm sorry by the jury in the um, Arbery case. I think the evidence is far more compelling in that case than it was in Rittenhouse. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I agree, Rich. Um, you know, I, I think there will likely be some civil actions arising out of Rittenhouse. I agree with you on that. With respect to Arbery, I also agree that the evidence was more compelling, different standards, different set of circumstances. I guess one comment I've got is that with respect to both juries and particularly with Arbery, there are a lot of very nuanced legal issues as we discussed with our guests. And so These are issues that we as seasoned attorneys um, realize are difficult issues to parse through. And so I really feel for the juries in both of these cases because these are difficult concepts and they intertwine in very nuanced and difficult ways. And so um, that is what I think are some of the biggest um, you know, observations that I have that these are not cut and dry issues and cut and dry laws that we're dealing with in Georgia and Wisconsin. Well, Bob, as a, as a non-lawyer, um, you know, I, I like your perspective on the Rittenhouse verdict because, you know, supporters of Rittenhouse point to it as an example of the system going right, that this was uh, a good case of self-defense and in fact, the jury system working. In fact, the president, I think, reluctantly acknowledged that the jury system worked in this case. On the other hand, um, you know, people who see Rittenhouse as a criminal uh, see this as a miscarriage of justice. And in fact, you can look to the vice president who said in the wake of the verdict that more work needs to be done on these issues. So, you know, as someone looking at Rittenhouse, whatever side of the spectrum you're on, do you see this as regardless of whether you support or don't support Rittenhouse, the jury system working? Yes. I mean, I have to, you know, believe that the jury, you know, did their diligence three days of, you know, uh, deliberating and, uh, you know, the Second Amendment prevailed here. You know, I'm not a gun guy, uh, so I have a hard time, you know, thinking that I can take a gun anywhere and, you know, protect myself with it. But uh, I do understand. uh, I know a lot of people that are one of my best friends owns a gun store and I, I know how busy they've been, not just lately, I mean, for the last year and a half. So uh, I just trust the jury did their diligence and the justice prevailed in this case. Yes. 
Xavier, I want to get your opinion on a couple of specific issues in the Arbery case because I, I find them still quite appalling. So the, uh, the motion, and it's not even a proper motion, as you know, by one of the defense lawyers to exclude, in his words, black pastors from uh, the courtroom, which, you know, when you just think about that statement in 20, almost 2022, is quite a shocking motion. Thankfully, the judge denied it. But most importantly, and most even more shockingly, like, you know, you hear this stuff and you can't believe it's going on in, in almost 2022. This sentence by the defense attorney yesterday, where she says that, uh, I'll just read it because I, I can't do it justice, turning Ahmad Arbery into a victim after the choices that he made does not reflect the reality of what brought Ahmad Arbery to Satilla Shores in his khaki shorts with no socks to cover his long, dirty toenails. That's what Laura Hogue, one of Gregory McMichael's lawyers, told the jury just yesterday. How does a lawyer stand up and make that kind of blatantly racist statement to a jury and seemingly get away with it? I mean, hopefully she won't get away with it when the jury comes back. But what's your thoughts of that statement? First and foremost, uh, this is not the Aubrey case or trial. Um, Ron Aubrey is not on trial. Uh, as much as the media likes to frame the Rittenhouse trial versus the Aubrey trial, Gregory McMichael, Travis McMichael, and William Bryan Jr. are the ones on trial. I think that's very important. Uh, also, very important that you have uh, an African-American attorney, only 5% of us are African-American, to break down these issues and see past in the lens of the the basic standards of using the legal system to color how law is presented to the public. Uh, That's number one. The second thing is, I think what happened in the case isn't difficult. It isn't challenging. It isn't complex. Um, I think the the prosecutor in this case was excellent in terms of her cross-examination. She was able to use also in a close refer to the racialized nature of racist nature of how these defendants behaved. And also the defense has been disgusting and openly racist, talked about how the man's toes looked and, and complaining about black pastors. Um, it's been a disgusting display uh, there. I think that the prosecutor was just better than the prosecutor in the, the Rittenhouse case, but you also have to consider the fact there also was a judge within a period 15 years ago, 250 plus defendants were tried to move to get him out of their cases who he were more he was more challenging to that is more lenient to Rittenhouse. And so you also have the, the aspect of biased juries and how they were played into by the defense. And so you also have to look at those components and break down why those cases are different and why this case, in my opinion, how the media, if you think how we're framing it, we're looking at the Rittenhouse trial versus the Arbery trial. And that's basically the person that's being sympathized with the most, seemingly. And I think that's the side that's going to fall on, on the jury. And I think that's the difference in those two cases. All right, Tina, a new investigation affecting a very significant ruling in American history. On Thursday, a New York judge tossed the convictions of two men in the murder of Malcolm X. Yeah, so Joe, this was an investigation that interestingly went on for 22 months and was actually triggered by a um, by a documentary, a six-part documentary that we actually talked about here on Legal Faceoff back in 2020 about Malcolm X. Um, this documentary um, suggested that two of the three men who were convicted actually could not have done the crime, so to speak, because they were not at the scene of the crime at the time. So this documentary profiled all three men, um, and Mujahid Abdul Halim is the only one of the three who admitted to taking part in the crime. Um, And Halim had said that 
He was actually aided by four members of the Nation of Islam, which was the organization that Malcolm X had broken away from before he was assassinated. All three of the men who were convicted of this crime had been released from prison in the 1980s. Um, the investigation ended up triggering um, um, a look at the NYPD and the FBI and how they each handled and withheld evidence that would have likely led to the acquittals of these other two men, Muhammad Aziz and Khalil Islam, including information that had implicated other people in the crime and the fact that there was an anonymous tipster who had um, given notice to law enforcement before the assassination. And these men also had alibis that were actually in evidence that was withheld as well. So a very interesting case. Um, this is not the first one that we've covered here, a legal face-off, where documentaries end up taking what is believed to be a closed and shut case and causing the authorities to revisit it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, another example. We've covered them dozens of times on our podcast over almost uh, over, over seven years of, you know, uh, organizations like the Innocence Project doing excellent work and uncovering um, evidence that for lots of reasons, including blatant racism, weren't uncovered in years past. Uh, interesting, but by the way, side note, uh, one of Malcolm X's daughters just died uh, yesterday, passed away mm -hmm. in, the, in New York. But mm -hmm. um, Xavier, what are your thoughts on on this uh, exoneration? Yeah, it's 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 too little too late. Uh, and, and, and it's not that much that can be done about it. I mean, the men have spent years behind bars. We also had multiple documentaries that I think there are many of us knew inherently what with some a hint of what's going on, but it also looks at how police departments have handled investigations. And really, if you think about it, how has that changed from then to now? And where, where are the reports about how departments have cleaned up how they investigate matters like this and how it relates to what happens in our, what we see every single day? And I, I, I don't see much of that. And I think that's the bigger implication of what this case uh, it shows us. One of the more recognizable people at the Capitol riot last January, Rich, is heading to prison 41 months for Jacob Chansley. Yeah, pretty significant sentence, uh, three and a half years, although he was given credit for 10 months of time served. Uh, but in federal courts, uh, the, uh, the QAnon shaman, as he called himself, this is the guy who showed up with the horns and stormed the Capitol. Uh, he's gonna spend some time behind bars uh, you know, the judge did credit him for admitting that he was wrong. Um, but, you know, this was a uh, among the most recognizable uh, people who were involved in the January 6th rioting. And I think appropriately so uh, got a, a, a very severe sentence. Um, if you recall, this was among the things he said was that uh, Mike Pence is an effing traitor. Uh, he went to the dais of the Senate floor and uh, scrawled on a piece of paper. It's only a matter of time. Justice is coming. So in my mind, three and a half years is actually a little light. Uh, the important part, as we've heard from many federal prosecutors we've had on our show over the years, is sending a message, right? The judge certainly wants to send a message to like-minded individuals who have similar thoughts of mayhem and, and, and you know, like action in the future that that will land you in a federal jail for a long time. I completely agree with you, Rich. And we actually had as a guest um, his lawyer, who um, who has had a number of interesting cases over the years, including representing the Michigan student who started the South Butt 
um, you know, case with and was actually the defendant in the North Face South Butt case. Um, and he had some very interesting theories on his client's case. Ultimately, I agree with you. I think this was a light sentence, um, but really for the purpose of deterrence. All right. So I got to ask you, Xavier, this is a, uh, a white individual who was granted by the court 40 minutes to speak his mind. Uh, we had his lawyer on who, you know, uh, made this argument that he had some issues, some mental issues. If this were a average African-American defendant, do you think we're looking at this kind of sentence or do you think uh, he he would be treated differently? If his sentence was death, yeah, sure. Many of those that were stormed the Capitol, if they were African-American, they would have gunned down and Swiss cheesed up. I just got to keep it real. I I think that the justice system afforded those individuals not to be dealt with the the severest penalty that can be met them, those that are storming the Capitol um, and that they're privileged to be there. And there is even a judge in uh, the cases that talked about how prosecution was pursuing the charges in a a very lesser way. I, I think that Hit three and a half years, that's extremely light. I don't think it's a deterrence because many of the individuals that were there didn't really face really stiff consequences. So, which these individuals definitely would have faced if they were African American. We just look at all the arrests that happened during the protest last summer, uh, even to the fact that someone had to come and go, go along and, and pull out their gun. And now they're getting off for having to shoot and kill a couple of these people. I think that it's important for us to recognize that this justice, the justice system is clear as black and white. It's shown in this case as well. Yeah, I think it's really important to 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 say that out loud. And, you know, I don't want to uh, inject race into every legal issue that we cover on the show, but it's impossible not to look at the dramatic differences, right, between some of the cases we cover and others. I mean, Mont Arbery, right, was gunned down by three white guys in a pickup truck with a Confederate flag on it for jogging, or even in the worst case scenario, he was looking at a home he shouldn't have been at, right? We had George Floyd killed on an American street, maybe for shoplifting, right? Killed, lost his life. Yet we have this guy who dressed up in a Viking helmet and stormed the capital of our country and literally helped take over you know, our, our nation's capital. Let, let, let me stop. Let me stop. Let me stop you there. You said that yeah. the place that Armour Arbery shouldn't maybe he a worst case scenario shouldn't have been, but that's not true. He was I not disobeying. He I wasn't disobeying the law. Okay. I want right. to make sure that's clear, clear because that's one of the elements of the defense is that they assumed that he was somewhere where he wasn't supposed to be. And they were, that's where they were, they were there to make a, a citizen's arrest. The, if the jury accepts that, then that gives them possibility to seep in some reasonable doubt. So I think it's extremely important to point that out in the racialized nature of what they said to him when he was on the ground to indicate they weren't there looking at him as possibly violating the law. Okay. I totally sure. agree. My only point is, even if you take that argument to its extreme and believe somehow that he was where he should have been, do you shoot someone because of that as compared to this case where an individual, a white individual, threatened to kill the vice president of the United States and gets what appears to be a slap on the wrist for it? I mean, it just doesn't seem to be equitable, right, when you look at those those uh, those comparisons. Bob, what are your thoughts on, on this sentence? It seems like to me, Rich, you know, especially with the horns and, and the, you know, the whole makeup and, you know, the, the costume he's wearing with the hat and everything and, uh, you know, once you breach the steps of the Capitol, you know, I think uh, your rights uh, are, are out the window. And, um, you know, for some reason, this mass of people is being given uh, somewhat of a pass. I mean, it's, it's stunning 
you know, what uh, citizens arrest and vigilanteism you know, is doing uh, to society at the moment. And yet, you know, these people were trying to take uh, the law into their own hands. And, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, they're all getting uh, a year or less. So it's, it's unfortunate. Really no smooth way to move into the next topic, but here we go into NFTs and Quentin Tarantino. And actually, it's kind of weird. I, I saw a TikTok about this where these NFT experts were explaining to Quentin Tarantino how he can make money off of it and you know, just basically explaining everything about it. But now Tina Miramax is suing the famous director for rights of these images. Yeah, so here on Legal Face Off, we've become experts on NFTs. We've featured a number of stories on this topic as it's grown in popularity. So this story is just a natural progression of our growing expertise in this area. So as Joe mentioned, Miramax sued Quentin Tarantino last week for his selling of Pulp Fiction NFTs without its permission. Miramax is claiming what is often claimed in these cases, which is breach of contract and copyright infringement. Um, these NFTs um, he announced earlier this month, he'd be auctioning off, were excerpts from his screenplay for Pulp Fiction. They were actually deleted scenes along with audio commentary, which provided secrets and insights into the film and his creative process. Miramax claims that when they originally met with Tarantino back in 95 and reached an agreement with him about how to apportion the rights, um, that this was something that they walked away with. And of course, Tarantino begs to differ. He says that there was a carve out for certain reserved rights, which he retained, and that his ability to sell NFTs for the screenplay were part of the rights that were carved out for him. So we've seen a number of lawsuits in this space recently. Um, they usually always involve claims of copyright, and it's a pretty straight-up analysis under copyright. Only the copyright holder uh, can create NFTs. Um, they sometimes license these rights, but usually they will retain the rights, especially given how lucrative this business can be. Um, one other interesting thing to note, though, is we're not really seeing these cases go to trial because there's a realization that because of the lucrative nature of the market, it's not really in either the plaintiff or the defendant's best interest to have these cases go to court because it significantly impacts the market for NFTs. So it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. I think we're going to see an out-of-court settlement, but I think given the money that's at stake and the popularity of cryptocurrency, I think we're going to continue to see people pushing the limits of the rights regarding uh, these NFTs. I think what's so interesting about this, besides the fact that it's going to lead to, you know, all of this is a brand new area. So inevitably it will lead to a whole new line of business for lawyers, which is, you know, good, I guess. Um, but that, you know, anything could be an NFT, right? I mean, think of all the scripts, the original scripts that people have in the, in the, in the movie and entertainment business. Those are all NFTs, right? Cause they're individual pieces of, uh, of art that are really uh, lucrative, but we got to just dive into a little Tarantino. We got to geek out on Tarantino a little bit. So, you know, we like to go around the room at least once on every podcast. Uh, let's do that quickly. Coin, what's your favorite uh, Tarantino movie? He only has a few to choose from. He I, only has I, a couple of choose from. So I, the Kill Bill series, you know, that just, that's an incredible Uma Thurman and uh, Travolta and all those are just amazing movies. Kill Bill. Xavier, do you have a favorite uh, Tarantino flick? Yes, it's sticking in my heart. 
Pulp Fiction. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Joe, bring up the gimp, by the way. Joe? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I got to go with Pulp Fiction, too. It's the one I've seen most. It's the one I've seen most recently. And actually, it was the one they were talking about in that TikTok where I actually kind of understood NFTs a little bit more because of the significance of that image of uh, John Travolta and... Uh, uh, why am I blanking on the name? He's, uh, Samuel, Samuel Jackson. Yeah, Samuel, Samuel Jackson. Jackson uh, pointing the guns like that is what helped me understand how NFTs work because of the way they were explaining, you know, the the having the official uh, image of that is is how you make a profit off of it. So yeah, I, I got to agree with Xavier here. I met Samuel L. Jackson in Montreal about two years after Pulp Fiction came out. And they, the only question I asked him was a question that he said he's been asked like by that time, a thousand times. You know what the question was? Any of you Pulp Fiction uh, experts will know the question. Uh, something about like, how many times do you have to repeat that line? Call me blank one more time. No, the question was, what was in the briefcase? Uh, oh, the gold. Right. And, and his answer was pretty funny. It was uh, lights and wires. He gave it <laughs> right. a, a literal answer, right? Because, you know, the, anyway, uh, any of your Pulp Fiction uh, fans will know that reference. Uh, Tina, what's your favorite Tarantino movie? What do you think it is? Oh, I don't know. If you say, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Why don't you give it to us? Pulp Fiction. <laughs> oh, come on. You got to come up with something more original. I'm going to say, I'm going to give you my my favorite. It's re- I've seen Reservoir Dogs. I was all in on Reservoir Dogs from day one. I've seen Reservoir Dogs maybe 300 times, but I'll give you a little, probably the least seen movie of Tarantino, and it's one of my favorites. It's Death Proof. Have you seen Death Proof? Nope. You got to go watch Death Proof. It's uh, it's it's part of the uh, the two pack that him and um, Rodriguez did together, and it's basically a revenge movie uh, with Kurt Russell, and he's got this uh, this car, and he stalks women with it. It's an incredible movie. So go watch uh, go watch Death Proof. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good. All right, let's keep moving, uh, Joe. Yeah, well, actually, really quick, Reservoir Dogs, Reservoir Dogs, Steelers Wheel, Stuck in the Middle with You, One Hit Wonder. It was just a recent question in trivia I did last week. Steelers oh, yeah. Wheel, nobody knew that. Uh, you never <laughs> actually see him cut the ear off, by the way. Uh, yeah, it's good. Because that would have got the movie uh, at X rating. Mm. Uh, Rich, earlier you were talking about a whole new line of business for lawyers. Uh, big law firm is giving their employees an opportunity to learn business skills. Tina? So Sidley Austin um, is doing something a little bit different. Our listeners, many of you will know that Sidley is one of the most respected law firms in the world. And as of January 1, they've decided to take a little bit more of a business bent with their associate class, um, particularly their mid-level and senior level associates. So they're going to be given an opportunity to participate in executive programs, MBA type programs at some of the top MBA schools, um, which sets them apart. There are firms that will offer these types of scholarships, but they're not usually being offered to folks um, in in this much of like a critical mass type of a group as Sidley's planning on doing it. They're also going to be doing a few other things too, which I think makes them quite a bit different from other law firms and definitely different from big law. They're going to be doing some internal executive leadership programming too, Um, Associates are going to be given the opportunity to work with business development and professional coaches. Um, They're going to be given the opportunity to work on what is called passion projects, which are going to have a nonprofit or pro bono bent. 
Um, they're also going to um, be able to have new titles other than senior associate, mid-level associate. They're going to be called managing associates if they're mid-level associates and senior managing associates if they are in the senior associate ranks and headed towards partnerships. So what's interesting is that Sidley is offering all of these things on a voluntary basis. Um, this seems to be pretty innovative. I'm not aware of any other law firm that's doing and bundling all of these different types of offerings and opportunities to its associates. I think it's some growing recognition of the importance for attorneys to differentiate themselves and to understand the businesses of their clients and to not just be transactional in terms of the work that they do for their clients. So I think it's going to be interesting to see if there are going to be other firms that are going to follow in Sidley's footsteps. Yeah, I think it's a really innovative program, you know, myself, because uh, it recognizes, as you mentioned, the fact that when you come out of law school, and in fact, for many years of your practice, you know, you're, you think, I want to be the best lawyer I can, I want to practice law, I want to know the law, I want to be able to argue, etc. What you don't learn necessarily, certainly not in law school, maybe not for the first few years in practice, is how to be a business person, right? And at the end of the day, what we're all doing in the law is selling a product, right? We're, we're just selling widgets, we're selling burgers, we're selling cars, our product happens to be legal services, right? And you don't really know that coming out of law school, um, so I think, uh, some sense of, uh, you know, learning about business, getting your MBA while you're practicing law, I think is great. The other interesting takeaway I thought from this story was, um, you know, titles. I mean, uh, you could certainly argue that more titles are not a positive development that, you know, by giving everyone automatically these titles of managing associate at the start of your fourth year and senior managing associate at, at your seventh year, kind of uh, detracts from the whole notion of achieving that role organically rather than just receiving it. But it's also a recognition, and this article points out, um, of the need to keep people in this economy more than ever. You know, we've got a culture that uh, people are quitting, right? The great resignation, uh, we've got quick culture. So perhaps this is a recognition of um, needing people to stay and maybe giving them a title to go with that. Xavier, what are your thoughts on any aspect of this story? Yeah, what I thought was actually most interesting was that the time spent in the program counts towards billable targets. I think yeah. that's a biggie because that's allowing you to not get burnt out working so much. You talked about earlier being not so transactional, but but professional development is part of you're being paid to do that. And I think that it incentivizes associates that they're not just going to be looked at as just turning over cases and looking through tons of different documents and having to say network their way up when they actually can hit that recognizable, scalable, real targets that they could use to be able to advance profession. Now you talked about four years versus seven years. I think that sometimes associates look at that as maybe being very far off and not having a place that they could probably hit professionally and feel like they're languishing in this certain state. And I think that this gives them something to shoot for while they're working at the same time toward that target. I think this is an excellent program. I think that other law firms probably will compete with them with this. You won't see the last of this. Bob, as someone who has hired lawyers before, I know you have, uh, do you care if your lawyer is involved with a passion project? Do you care if they have the title of senior managing associate? Do you care if they have uh, an MBA or other business degree, or do you just want someone who's a great lawyer to handle your contract or your real estate transaction or, or whatever? 
Yeah, I think I want someone to, that is capable of doing the job. I, th- I think it kind of sounds a little fluffy to me, even though I've been in the same job for 22 years with basically the same title. But uh, it, it, you know, I, it, it kind of screams just, you know, HR <laughs> to me uh, that, the, you know, it's your annual review and, uh, you know, you have to hit these uh, particular answers these questions and then they're never looked at again. So, you know, I think achievement, you know, promote, you know, somebody wins a huge case that they found and, you know, won an amazing verdict for their company in their second year, that person maybe should make partner, never mind managing and, and you know, other titles that, that you have in some sort of an incremental, you know, time uh, chronology. I, I think uh, achievement is more important than duration. Something that goes hand in hand, holidays and arguments, or in this case, lawsuits around Thanksgiving. We've got a handful of them, Tina. I don't know where you want to start with this one. Well, there are just so many good ones. And this is another fine LFO tradition around Thanksgiving, as well as the other holidays to cover the more ridiculous lawsuits. Um, We cover ridiculous lawsuits on this show, but these tend to be at the top of the list. So I'm happy to kick off the discussion. We had a number of them that our group here Um, took a look at. It's hard to pick which ones are the favorites here. Um, I'm going to have to go with the one that touches on intellectual property law, which is the one involving copying directions on how to cook a turkey. Is it a copyright violation or not for one turkey company to print on its label how to cook a turkey if it happens to be the same set of cooking instructions as their competitor? Just (laughs) as a general matter, just a general matter, recipes are among the least protectable forms of um, written works, so to speak, which is what we call them when we're doing the copyright analysis. So in that case, the claim was subsequently dismissed, probably because it's really hard to protect, put turkey in oven um, as a direction. Um, but it's between this one and the 1938 case of the woman who ate a turkey dinner at Woolworths, of all places, to go eat turkey dinner. Um, and just, and unfortunately choked on a small bone when she was eating turkey. Um, unfortunately, when you eat turkey, you're supposed to expect bones. They don't grow on trees. So that was one of my other favorite cases. Um, but would love to turn it to the group here to ask you which of your cases that you reviewed here were your favorites. Rich, why don't you kick things off? Well, I mean, my favorite, my favorite part of the choking story was the, uh, the damages. 36 bucks. In uh, 1938, I got apparently, yeah, apparently choking wasn't worth very much back in 1938. Yeah, I mean, inevitably, these cases, as the cases in the Halloween episode of of stupid Halloween lawsuits, always involve one common theme, in my opinion, lack of responsibility, right? I mean, I'm a defense lawyer, so I defend uh, against frivolous lawsuits every day, including people who claim they're uh, eating foreign particles of foods at my clients' restaurants that inevitably are nonsense. So, you know, these lawsuits, in my opinion, generally deal with people who are not taking responsibility or are looking to blame others, which admittedly is the bedrock of the legal system in many ways. And I wouldn't be in business if that wasn't the case. But um, yeah, most of these lawsuits, I think, are, are humorous, but fairly frivolous. Uh, Bob, what are your thoughts on Well, I was wondering if are, are you gonna Are you going to sue anyone at your Thanksgiving dinner, maybe for... Uh, <laughs> Bad no. dressing or gravy no. or anything? 
No, I'm not getting political either at my Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, but I was wondering, Tina, if it was a handwritten recipe on how to cook a turkey from Julia Child that someone mm. else tried to put on That would be an NFT. That's a handwritten. That would be an NFT. Uh, and we know that uh, NFTs are copied by, are covered by copyright. No, so. I was kind of surprised that the hunter uh, who shot the other hunter was not, you know, at liable, let's say, because... Uh, you know, it, it's some sort of a rule that you need to identify the whether it's a male or female turkey before you take the shot. And to shoot another person, you certainly didn't uh, do dil- due diligence there, right? Uh, so I was kind of surprised that that was all dropped, if I'm not mistaken. I think he was gobbling, though, like a turkey. Oh. I, if, if I remember correctly, like, I, I think he created a pretty hazardous situation. So I, um, I, I think that might have been one of the relevant facts in that one. Got it. Xavier, you have, you have to sue if you have to sue someone coming out of uh, your Thanksgiving meal. <laughs> who, who would that? Who would that be? Hey, I'm I'm, I'm vegan, so uh, ah. if, sue, if someone would sue me, they'd probably sue me for not eating the, the, the food that they would like. If they claim it was meat, and you know, I, I fooled them by because it was vegan. So uh, I had a huge Thanksgiving spread I did last year, um, and uh, someone if they some people said, "Hey, we didn't know this was not meat." <laughs> yep. So that would that would be that would get me in the suit. This I thought this interesting case was of the family who who sued their relatives because their son came and shot up the family dinner. Uh, yes, I, I, I thought that was an interesting case because I mean we think about. All of us have maybe a family member like, oh, I don't know if Uncle Bob's going to, you know, it's going to make Thanksgiving uncomfortable for everyone. Uh, and the fact they would have an uninvited guest that show up there. I mean, I have been in many situations where someone just came uninvited for Thanksgiving there. And you're like, uh, oh, no, they're going to turn the whole tide of this place. And this is going to be the Thanksgiving for hell. So uh, I've experienced that. And this is an interesting case for me as well. Well, Joe, speaking of Thanksgiving, there's lots of rumors that our uh, beloved Chicago Bears coach might not see Thanksgiving or might uh, not be celebrating. What's the latest on uh, the fate of Mr. Nagy, Coach Nagy? Yeah, kind of a wild day as we record on this. What is it, Wednesday? Is it Tuesday? Tuesday. Tuesday. Um, that apparently, th- this is the life I live, never knowing what date is. Um, apparently, there's a report out there that Matt Nagy will be coaching his final game with the Bears on Thursday against the Lions, but he did. Talked to the media today at Hallis Hall, didn't really address that question head on as far as he knows is that it's still his job. Thursday won't be his last game. So I don't know, just kind of a lot of weird drama going on. We were talking about it before the show that the Bears have never fired a head coach midseason. So this would be the first time that would be to happen. But uh, it's been a rough year for the Bears. I think I saw something on Twitter recently that the White Sox won a game more recently than the Bears right now, and that is still true. Wow. Um, so, that's yeah, incredible. That's, that's definitely a factor. Really quick, though, now I'm curious, Xavier, what's the best or at least your favorite vegan Thanksgiving dish? Like what's something people might not realize? Oh, yeah, this is also vegan if you wanted it. Oh, well, I make this amazing vegan shepherd's pie. That's uh that's pretty delicious. That's kind of coated with mashed potatoes and it's like the vegan and the vegetables all in underneath. It's, it's, it's quite yummy. Um, and for dessert, uh, it's going to be a key lime pie. Mm. Well, now that you've given the recipe, someone's going to steal it and you'll sell yeah. them for us. So there we go. <laughs> That's right. I'm, I'm making an NFT out of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, the good news is whatever day it is, Wednesday, Tuesday, it's, it's hockey night in Chicago, right? Let's go. Bob's got it the, is. uh, 
the Blackhawks there in the background. For right. those of our listeners that don't know, Joe is the uh, pre, post, and what uh, intermission game vo- voice of the Blackhawks. So big game tonight. Yeah, big game tonight. Taking on the Calgary Flames, trying to finish off a positive road trip so far, two one and zero. But uh, Calgary's hot, so this will be a good challenge. Uh, we also got Blackhawks live coming up tomorrow night too at seven o'clock. We'll be giving away a Boykey's prize pack, so feel free to tune into that. And then uh, after the Thanksgiving holiday, they'll be back at home hosting St. Louis on Friday. So busy, busy week for the Hawks right now, and uh, busy time for everyone else. Well, as a Canadian, I'll just say that uh, we call this week. Uh, thursday um our our thanks our thanksgiving was in october so i don't know what you guys will be doing on thursday but i'll just another day for us canadians so me maybe me and coach king will uh, celebrate together too the fourth fourth of july is just the fourth of july right exactly <laughs> well if you celebrate thanksgiving in october or on this thursday we wish you a happy holiday and a following happy holiday season ensuing as well for our great guests today on legal grab bag bob Coyne and xavier pope all of our other guests earlier today on Legal Faceoff, Bertina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. I'm Joe Brand. You've been listening to Legal Faceoff here on WGN Radio. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Faceoff. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...